Hello there, Connor here. This week the In The News team is taking a short break, but we're replaying some of our favourite episodes from the last few months. Today, will we ever solve the mystery of who killed Michael Collins? Ninety-nine years after his death, the truth about who assassinated Michael Collins remains one of the great unanswered questions in Irish history. One long shot, apparently like from a sniper, rang out and hit him in the side of the head, the right-hand side there, fell down and he never spoke again. At the time of his killing at Bail Blaw on August the 22nd, 1922, Collins was the chairman of the provisional government of the Irish Free State. Over the last century, there have been countless books, academic papers and articles, all speculating on who fired the single shot that killed him. The careless and cack-handed way in which the provisional government handled the killing of Michael Collins has fuelled allegations of an official cover-up. In recent decades, suspicion has fallen on Dennis Sonny O'Neill, a former British soldier turned IRA volunteer who joined the anti-treaty side during the Civil War. But now, new evidence suggests that O'Neill, allegedly a trained marksman, was not the shooter. So, who did kill Michael Collins? And who stood to benefit most from his death? Paddy Cullivan is an art historian and performer who has uncovered documentation in the German archives, which he says casts doubt on Sonny O'Neill's guilt. Paddy, you've been researching the man known as the big fella for your latest show, The Murder of Michael Collins. Given the stature of Michael Collins, he was the leader of the Free State at the time of his death, presumably that meant there was a thorough investigation into his murder. No. There was never an inquiry. There was a kind of a half-hearted one in 1924 by a a local guard. There was no inquest. Major General Emmett Dalton banned inquests in the Cork area in September. The car they were travelling in, which was full of evidence and whatever else, uh, was immediately returned to the Leyland car factory in England and ended up in Kenya in September. No rifle was ever found. The rifle that Collins is supposedly clutching, has never shown up. A Webley revolver did show up and sold for 72000 a few years ago by auction. So you would think that that rifle would be around. No inquest, no inquiry, no death cert. The autopsy, if it existed at all, by Oliver St. John Gogarty, was supposedly burned in 1932 during the infamous burn order, where Desmond Fitzgerald, Minister for Finance, burnt a lot of sensitive documents to do with executions and spies Uh, during the Civil War, uh, two days before Finnefall took power. Now, yes, you can say they were doing that. It could lead to loss of life, you know, if Finnefall found out what was going on. But why burn all the Michael Collins stuff? He doesn't even have a debt cert, which is incredible. So there is something very, very odd about the whole thing, because everybody got an inquest from Carl Brewer to Liam Lynch, Captain Collison and all sorts of free state guys got inquests. Why did Michael Collins not have an inquest into his debt? He was the commander in chief of the country. One comparison I make is if Tito or Ataturk had been killed eight months into their premiership of Yugoslavia and Turkey, I wonder would the Yugoslavs and the Turks just turn around and go, ah, sure, leave it alone now. Let the man rest in peace. Sure, we'll never know. It's a big mystery. General Michael Collins was the first commander-in-chief of the Irish army. Ronan McGreevy, you frequently write about Irish history for the Irish Times and you particularly focus on the War of Independence and the First World War and a lot of the events which we're going to be marking the centenary of. Now, 
many people will know who Michael Collins was, obviously, even if it's only from watching the Neil Jordan film of years back. But for those who don't know who Michael Collins is, can you tell us who he was? Well, he was probably the most remarkable person to come out of the Irish Revolution uh, and certainly the most famous with the exception of Eamon de Valera. He was born in 1890. His father was 75 years of age. He fought in the Easter Rising. By 1919, uh, he becomes a director of intelligence in the IRA, the man responsible for organising the squad, which takes out uh, many of the uh, major British intelligence operatives in the War of Independence on Bloody Sunday and also other uh, targeted assassinations. He's also the Minister for Finance. He has a background in finance. He is a reluctant individual who signs the Anglo-Irish Treaty in December 1921, setting up the Free State against some of his own judgments, but he famously defends the uh, signing of the treaty, saying that it was not the freedom that all nations desire, but the uh, freedom to achieve freedom, the so-called stepping stone theory. Fast forward to the Civil War in, in January 1922. He's the first chairman of the provisional government that's set up under the treaty, and he takes over in July 1922 as the commander-in-chief of the National Army fighting the Civil War. Can you maybe paint a picture of what Ireland was like around the time of his death? I mean, obviously, they were turbulent times. There'd been the Easter Rising. There'd been the War of Independence. There was the Civil War. And of course, there was the First World War, which an awful lot of Irish people had fought in. So what was Ireland like? You have to understand that at that stage, uh, Ireland had been through seven years of war, starting with the, the First World War in August 1914. But just to talk about August 1922, August the 22nd, at this stage, the Civil War is won. Basically, the uh, treaty side have captured Dublin after a week. They've captured Cork after two days, Limerick, Waterford. Uh, they breached the so-called Munster Republic, which is this line that the anti-treaty side were trying to hold from Limerick to Waterford. The anti-treaty side are on the run. They don't have the public support. They don't have the material or the main to take on the free state. They're completely disorganised. They're also divided, an awful lot of them, including De Valera, as it turns out, and Liam Dempsey, want to make peace. They want peace with honour. They want a way out of all of this. Michael Collins is going down to Cork to rally the troops, basically, and also to try and see uh, if he can get peace terms with some of the anti-treaty side who realise that the um, the jig is up for them. And what do we know about August the 22nd, 1922? How did that day unfold? He was basically doing inspections in West Cork of the countryside at that stage. He was warned by a lot of people that this was the most fervently anti-treaty site. And somebody once said famously that there wasn't a single pro-treaty IRA man from Bandon to Cork City. But, uh, you know, this is Michael Collins's home turf. You know, he's not going to be put out by this. So he goes in convoy all day. He takes a very circuitous route. So he goes to Bill in the Blaw early in the morning where he spotted. He goes to McCroom, Clonakilty etc. You know, he starts off at quarter past six in the morning, so the, the ambush happens at eight o'clock. Now, he also stops off in his cousin's pub at one stage, and there are um, allegations, serious or not, that he was actually quite well inebriated, as was quite a few members of his entourage by the time that the ambush happened uh, in the evening time. The ambush party, the IRA ambush party, had been in place for several hours before that, but most of them had melted away, because I mean, we're talking about eight o'clock on a on August the 22nd, you know, we're talking about twilight in West Cork. So um, 
it was a series of really tragic and, and, and to be honest, freak events that, you know, you have this, this shootout, uh, this ambush, and the only fatality at the end of it all, the only casualty at the end of it all is the most important man in Ireland at the time who was Michael Collins. The ambush was set there for him, and whether it was a bullet by accident or not, the ambush was set and they intended to kill him. In the 99 years since he was killed, how many people or who has been accused of shooting Michael Collins? An awful lot of people have. The chief suspects have been the eight men that we know were at the ambush site. But the chief suspect over the last, say, three decades has been Dennis Sonny O'Neill, who's a former British veteran of the First World War. He was named in Colm Connolly's documentary 30 years ago as the person who pulled the trigger on, on Michael Collins. Sonny O'Neill had seen service in the British Army and he was a crack shot. Coming up, could Sonny O'Neill really have fired the shot that killed Michael Collins? Paddy, tell me who was Dennis Sonny O'Neill and why is he so important to this story? Well, he's important because he was named in the 80s in a documentary as being the shooter. But he's always described as an ex-British army marksman and sniper. But he has a bit more of a fascinating history than that. In 1910, he becomes an RIC man and becomes a cavalry man. And cavalry is his skill set. Uh, he do- joins the South Dublin Irish Horse in the British Army and then in 1917 is sent on foot to World War I. In 1918, he's captured and he's discharged with a wound pension and then comes back to Ireland. And in in 1920, he meets Collins and Collins hires him for purely intelligence work. Now, why then is he described constantly as an ex-British Army marksman and sniper? You know, I look back, like everybody says it, it's just a natural thing they say. And then I try and find any kind of proof of this And I just can't. I know he's a cavalryman. I found out he was a musketry instructor, but that doesn't mean you're good with weapons. It means you're an adjutant general. You're good at setting up field kitchens and organizing men and stuff like that. But the biggest thing to me was the wound, which is he had a 40% disability, the wound he received in World War I, and continued to receive a wound pension for the rest of his life from the British Army. And his arm was 40% disabled, according to all records I found, German ones and English ones. Can you tell me about the records that you came across in the German archives about Sonny O'Neill? The effective, important thing about the German records was they showed me when he was taken prisoner and when he was released and that he had the wound in prison. So the wound was so bad that from January to June, he had it. That's in the records. They have unterarm or whatever um, damaged. And then... Obviously, he was rehabilitated and then discharged a month before the war's end with the wound pension because his arm was uh, so badly damaged. And then also he went to rejoin the RIC and they refused him on the basis of his wound. So we're talking about a guy who's meant to be an excellent sniper and marksman with an ineffective right arm. Let's just let's just lay it on the, the table there. But that's not the only issue, Paddy, is it? Because he was also firing from a fairly long distance in twilight. The weaponry of that time is not superb. He was about 450 feet away, which is the length of the Grand Parade in Cork. Listen, people have got on to me, you know, annoyed with me saying, oh, it could be done. It's easily done and all of this type of thing. And I'm going, "Okay, fine. But the minute you think you're on sure footing with Sonny O'Neill, then something else creeps in. 
And and I think, you know, it was twice the length. The shot he took was twice the length of the final shot Oswald supposedly took on JFK. And he only hit him properly on his third go. We're, we're meant to believe that Sonny got a perfect shot that hit the bottom left-hand side of Colin's skull and emerged on the right. And nobody else got any wounds or damage. There's there's something strange going on. And particularly when we're, we keep getting told that he's a British Army marksman and sniper, which it, it just, I can't find it. There's no record of him being a sniper whatsoever. No. Now, there's a weird document by an Agent 145, and this is one of the most incredible things about Sonny O'Neill. All the documents that were burned by Desmond Fitzgerald um, were to do with kind of spies. But weirdly, the ones to do with Sonny, the intelligence reports, had been sent in the late 20s to the guards, but were never given back. And that's why we have those surviving documents. So we know what Desmond Fitzgerald was burning. And it's millions of notes of Irish people spying on each other. When I went through this, I mean, it made the Stasi in East Germany look like a libertarian paradise. Everyone in Ireland was spying on everybody else. Like nobody could make a move. And there was little notes here. So this Agent 145 does a whole description of Sonny O'Neill. Now, at one point, he does say he's a first class shot. But we only see this document in 2017. So we can't say, oh, well, that, oh, that's the smoking gun because that's a secret document that nobody saw till 2017. So fair enough, he could have been a first class shot, but he still had a bad arm. And weirdly, in this description, he also says, and he also had a cane in his left hand. So he possibly had a limp. This guy is starting to look like Michael Palin's character in A Fish Called Wanda. You know, who are you? I'm the sharpshooter. You know, honestly, you know, none of this is to make fun of any of it, because a lot of people think quite seriously about this and they're very affected by Michael Collins. And I would, you know, I, I deeply love and respect him. But I deeply love and respect him enough to want to know the truth about him and not to just happily, you know, accept things like Sonny O'Neill was a marksman and sniper. And so you keep going through it and then you get to like 1937 and he describes his life in the IRA when he's doing these serial pension applications. And like, my God, like if you thought Irish bureaucracy was bad, why did he go through the pension? I had to read every bit of it. It's life draining. But at one point he says, myself and Tom Hales happened on the Ballina Blaw thing, Right. And uh, then he says the other battles he's involved in. And the most incredible thing that Rona McGreevy pointed out to me was, why did nobody ask a follow-up question? Would anybody like in the free state or on the Republican side just ask a follow-up like, a, oh, tell me more. Oh, you were at Belnabot. Tell me more. Any, anything <clears throat> you'd like to add? Nobody was curious, Connor. Nobody. And is it that they weren't curious or the questions they might have asked were hidden by shadowy hands moving in the darkness? Well, look, I'm, I'm not trying to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but you have to look at what happened after Collins died. Two things happened. Like I said, Collins was determined to move on the north. He even said on July 26th to Cosgrave that this civil war is giving a bit of training to our troops. But once we make peace and unite, it will be invaluable experience for when we move on the north. The second thing that happens after Collins dies is that the civil war becomes immensely dirty and the execution policy starts. And a lot of people are wiped out. Uh, and there's a lot of tit for tat killing, but including the death of Sean Hales, the guy who is the Jim Garrison of the, of the thing, who wants to investigate and is being turned down in every corner by the, the free state government. And he's saying, but why aren't we investigating this? You know, he's walking the lanes of West Cork going, how did this happen under my watch? Remember, he was meant to meet Collins that night at the Imperial Hotel to hammer out a peace deal. So history changes. And after Collins dies, Ernest Blythe issues a, a directive saying we will never again engage with the North and partitionism is sealed. You know, Collins' death 
was a boon for partitionists. And it was a boon for those who were very happy with the 26 county solution. It was all quite obviously to me with the experience I had, I was a ricochet bullet. It could only have been a ricochet or a dum-dum. There was one theory that he was killed by a ricochet bullet that bounced up off the ground and hit him in the head. But without an autopsy, we can't really know that, can we? That's it. It was a, it was a theory that got everybody off the hook, if you know what I mean. So it meant that the anti-treaty could say, oh, well, we, you know, we weren't really shooting at them, but it was, a, it was a stray bullet. And then the free state could also excuse the worst security failure in the history of a state that wasn't even founded yet because it didn't even come into existence until December 6th, 1922. Like... Someone's covering something up and everyone's covering something up. And that's the whole mystery of Elna Blaw, because if it was definitively the Republicans, why would the free state want to be so quiet about it and, and to cover things up about it and not have an inquest? If he was shot by his own side, then why do Republicans start saying in the 1970s and 80s, oh, Sonny did it or, or a fella told me who did it? Seven guys claimed they did it. So I suppose there's two questions here in one. The first question, big question is who done it? Who do you think shot Michael Collins? You haven't quite exonerated Sonny O'Neill but you think it's unlikely that he pulled the trigger. And then of course the second question is that in any crime drama the very first question that Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple or any investigator will ask is who has the motive? You know there are three motivations. The anti-tree who would want Collins dead because he stabbed them in the back and attacked them in the forecourts. But remember, up to this point, he was working with them and sending arms from the forecourts up north. So, you know, he attacks the forecourts because he thinks he can take out this small rump and then get back to work because they're not ready. They're not ready yet. The armies aren't big enough. They don't have enough arms. The British will keep sending him arms if he does that. Okay, so. I think it was a foolish move, but he did it, okay? But then he wants to end it as fast as possible. But their motivation is to, is to kill him because of the stab in the back. The Free State have a motivation to kill him as well, his own cabinet. You know, uh, all of those people, like I say, they're happy with the 26-county state. They can't wait to put their top hats on and, and go visit the bishop at the garden party. And here's a guy who wants to actually attack the North and go back to war. I describe it in my in my show. I, I, I pretend I'm a gangster mafioso and I, I kind of describe it like Goodfellas, like in, in Goodfellas terms. But that's what it was. He had They had to take him out because he wanted to go back to war. But the biggest beneficiary, of course, is the British. Because, you know, this man had fought them to a standstill. The, the country was partitioned. But here we have the man who will always be a thorn in their side gone. So I believe that there's manipulation coming from the big shark, and the two little sharks, the anti-treaty and the free state, are so embarrassed by having been manipulated in this regard, because I believe people weren't, people were telling each other porkies from Dublin down to Cork, down to everything. The people he was dealing with in the peace terms may not have been relating the information back to those who ambushed him. It's so complex, Connor. But all I know is that the beneficiaries were the free state and the British. Forensics have obviously come an awful long way in the last 99 years. So there would be one very simple way to narrow down the suspects. The body of Michael Collins could be exhumed and using modern technology, it could be very, very quickly established how far away the shooter was when Michael Collins died. Do you think there's any appetite for that? There was certainly in the, in the 70s and 80s, but do you think anybody would have any interest in doing that today? Put it this way, Connor. I mean, it's a crime. Like... If, if it happened to anybody else, if it happened to any family member, you'd want to know the truth. 
You know, now the Collins family do believe, a lot of them would believe the Sonny O'Neill story because that's what people related to each other. But again, I have to say, like, one of the fellows who talks about Sonny O'Neill being the guy wasn't even there. And another fellow, Tom Foley, says that Sonny O'Neill wasn't there at all himself. And he was gone by the time the ambush happened. So, you know, the rules of Irish history, that I knew a fellow who knew a fellow. He said, she said, all of that stuff. We'll really only know the truth if we exhume the body very sensitively and have an independent forensic examination. We know that Oliver St. John Gogarty did not obviously, but where is it? It may seem like an insensitive thing to do. It may seem wrong, but in a sense, we have to do it because we have to solve the crime, especially since we'll end up talking about Colin's death on the 22nd of August for the rest of time. Maybe before the 100th anniversary, we could actually solve the crime. And that way we can get busy talking about his brilliant life and his brilliant ideas and actually some of the great stuff in his book. I, I wish that we could do that. But while this unsolved crime is hanging over us, people will, will go back and forth with their theories and their beliefs and all the rest of it. I think we need to actually find the actual proof. And very simply done, if he is exhumed, sensitively examined, and then we know the truth. And we owe it not just to, to Collins, but we owe it to the O'Neill family and the Dalton families and anybody who has been accused. Because, you know, it's unfair to accuse somebody if we can't prove it. Ronan, what do you think? Will we ever know who killed Michael Collins? I mean, the truth is, even at this remove, we don't know for certain who who killed him. I mean, you've heard uh, Paddy mention uh, Dennis Sonny O'Neill, um, the alleged sharpshooter. There's some people who say he wasn't even there at that stage. I think one of the things that Paddy brings up and is who who benefited from his death. I mean, the reality is nobody benefited from his death, not even the anti-treaty side, because basically in getting rid of Michael Collins, they got rid of the one man who was willing to give them honourable peace terms. And, and what was left then was a fairly reactionary wing of the sort of provisional government at that time, W.T. Cosgrave, Kevin O'Higgins, Ernest Bly, Richard Mulcahy, who were prepared to do whatever it took to end the war, including executing 77 uh, men later that year. So nobody really benefited from it. But, um, you know, the theory that Paddy has advanced that the British wanted him out of the way because he was such a formidable opponent. To be honest with you, I'd have mixed views on that. I mean, Michael Collins did sign the treaty. He was the main reason why it was passed in the Dáil, albeit narrowly by 64 votes to 57, by people, a lot of whom didn't want it, but said, if it's good enough for Mick Collins, it's good enough for me. So my theory, as far as it goes, is that the Occam's razor applies here. The simplest explanation is the most obvious one, that he was killed by a stray shot fired by somebody in the anti-treaty party. That's it for today. In the news, we'll be back on Monday.